0: Greetings and welcome to episode 25 of Beyond Hua Xia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that will be likely be regarded as very unfamiliar for most of our listeners and quite shocking with lots of salacious details. It's also incredibly sad and very unpleasant, so prepare yourself for what we're going to be talking about today. The topic is Poverty and Women in China. Uh, That is to say, what effect does poverty have on the lives of women in pre-modern China? Now, historically speaking, uh, it's usually better to be a man than a woman. All, you know, all things said, uh, if you have a choice between being a man and a woman and you just sort of You know, put your finger randomly down, eyes closed at a certain time and place in world history. uh, Usually, if you're a man, uh, you're you're going to be better off than you are if you're a woman. uh, In terms of access to resources, the amount of authority you have in society, uh, respect, uh, autonomy that you might have in your daily life, uh, all of these things, usually it's better to be a man than a woman. That's the brutal reality of the world that most people lived in, Um, and you could arguably say uh, to a great extent even today. Now, um, if that's the case in normal times, uh, what is the case in times of economic deprivation? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, Let me first set the economic context of late imperial China. We are in the Qing dynasty, the last imperial dynasty founded in 1644. That's when the Manchus uh, conquered Beijing and eventually uh, they have the last emperor abdicating in February 1912. Now we're going to be talking about the 18th and 19th century mostly. All right, sort of the high Qing era is how it's often referred to okay? in which the Qing emperors expand the dynasty uh, to boundaries, uh, the Manchu emperors expand the boundaries of the dynasty to unprecedented lengths uh, largely towards the east uh, sorry, towards the western and northern parts of continental East Asia um, and at the same time we're also seeing, in addition to territorial expansion, we're also seeing a population boom now population booms are not all Always good things. They can often result in more taxes and more wealth for the state that rules over that population boom. Uh, but for the people who are sort of living in the mass of that population boom, what it really means for them is a new scarcity of resources. Now, to be a farmer in pretty much all times and places since, since 10,000 years ago in the agricultural revolution usually isn't all that great of a gig. Most people who engage in agriculture live at or even slightly below the subsistence level, okay? Um, one natural disaster, one drought, one flood, and you are fending for your lives, all right? You're fending off starvation, most likely. Uh, most of us today, people who are listening to this podcast, I would imagine that this sort of situation, the, the, the ever-present prospect of starvation, real starvation, is something that we can't even begin to comprehend, Okay, uh, the world we're going to be talking about today, the sort of circumstances that would drive people to the sort of straits that I'm going to be talking about today, the desperate straits in which these people engage is something that we can't really, we have, we have no reference points for it. Uh, most people listening to this podcast are of a certain educational background. And if you have a certain educational background, very often, that means that you're of a certain economic background. And for most of your life, you've had access in varying degrees to certain amounts of resources. That have given you a degree of comfort in your life. Uh, Relatively speaking, the amount of resources that you've had to bring comfort to your life and food on the table every single day multiple times a day is something that the people we're going to be talking about today would be deeply envious of you for. Okay, now what we're seeing during the Qing dynasty during the last couple hundred years of the imperial era in China is extreme overpopulation and farmers engaging in subsistence agriculture, just trying to keep their head above water. Okay? Now, all agricultural societies experience, experience constant overpopulation. That's part of the deal ever since the Fertile Crescent. Agriculture, on the whole, on the aggregate, even though in individual years, you might have deprivation sometimes if there's a flood or a drought, um, overall, eventually agriculture produces more food than there are human beings. Okay, it's just simply the fact that the people in charge will take away most of your foods and leave you with just enough for the subsistence level. That's why you're always starving, even though there's more food in general than there are people to consume it. But because you have more food than there are people who can consume this food, uh, agricultural societies are, you know, generally speaking, are always expanding. They're always getting bigger and going off trying to find new lands that they can cultivate. Okay, um, now, sometimes and some places can experience extreme overpopulation due to a sudden introduction of new technologies, such as various types of fertilizers, or sometimes just brand new crops that allow you to cultivate lands that previously could not support the type of crops that you normally eat. Now, one of the things that's going to happen in the 16 and 1700s during the Qing Dynasty is that the uh, North American sweet potato will be introduced to China. How will the sweet potato be introduced to China? It'll be introduced by Portuguese and Spanish sailors uh, who are exploring the New World, setting up colonies over there. They encounter the sweet potato, and then they bring seeds with them. Um, And by the 1700s, the sweet potato is actually revolutionizing Chinese farming. Traditionally, based on hard grains in the north and rice in the south, uh, neither of those can uh, be uh, grown on more nutrient-poor, higher-elevation hillsides. The sweet potato can. The sweet potato is very durable. And the sweet potato will translate into new calories that are available for people to consume. Which means you're going to have an ever-growing population. Now, from the Ming Dynasty through the Qing Dynasty, you are seeing one of the most astonishing population growths in all of human history. In the year 1400, towards the beginning of the of the Ming Dynasty, population of China, the Ming uh, the Ming Empire, is usually estimated at around 65 million people. That's already a lot. Okay, um, by 1850, 450 years later, that number will rise to 400 million, 400 million, that's like six and a half, seven times the amount of the population in 1400. And then if you narrow in a little bit more and look at just one century, the 18th century, get this number from 1700 to 1770, one lifetime of a healthy human being, a lucky human being, well, I don't know if it's lucky, in this day and age we know the average lifespan is significantly lower than 70 years old. Uh, so to say a lucky human being who actually lives to 70, uh, I don't know how comfortable and enjoyable his life is going to be even if he has been so quote-unquote lucky to make it to 70. Regardless, one unusually long-lived human being um, in the 18th century... The population of the Qing Dynasty doubles in one lifetime. It goes from 150 million to 270 million. That's incredible. In one lifetime, the population of the entire country will double. What does this mean? This means that family farms are going to get smaller and smaller. More sons are surviving. The farms, the wealth of the family is being divided among more and more kids. It means you're going to have the uh, sons who are born latest in line, you know, fifth, sixth, and seventh son if they manage to survive. They're going to simply be leaving the family without any hope of any sort of inheritance or help from the parents whatsoever. Even the number one son isn't getting a whole lot of help from the parents. I mean, everyone's pretty poor here. Uh, But the farther down you are the line, even less you're going to get. And these so-called rootless men will be migrating all over the empire in search of work, and more importantly, in search of what they refer to as wastelands to cultivate. In Chinese, the official way of describing wastelands to cultivate was to say Kaikan uh, to open up unused lands. Uh, Now, sometimes these lands were the lands of nomads and sedentary people will look at nomads oftentimes and they'll say, hey, you're not really using that land very well. We could grow crops there. You can't really unless you have new fertilizers or or, or revolutionary crops that can grow on the fragile step. Uh, But they're going to try. But what you're also trying to do is you're going off into highlands, higher elevations, uh, lands that could not support intensive rice agriculture. Um, And the sweet potato is going to allow you to do that. Okay, so population is booming. All right, it's booming. Now, there are two exacerbating phenomena during the Qing dynasty. The first is something that most of you are probably already familiar with, with regard to China in general, um, also India. Uh, Sex ratios are grossly imbalanced. Okay, something, you know, it can be 115 women to every 100 men, sometimes as high as 130 men for every 100 women. All right. Do the math. Uh, even if it's a one to one ratio, you know, strict monogamy, which it's not going to be as we're going to see. Um, that's still more men that can possibly have a wife. OK. And then two, probably 95, 96, 97 percent of the entire population, all of these 150 to 270 million people are in constant survival mode. They're in constant survival mode. OK. One natural disaster and they face the very real prospect of starving to death starving to death. A horrible, horrible way to go. So, the result of daily life for most people who are living in the Qing dynasty and any large agricultural society in the 18th century. Most peasants, most farmers are going to need to raise credit at some point in their lives. In other words, you're going to need to uh, obtain a certain amount of money to pay off expenses that you don't have ready cash on hand to pay for. Okay? People die all the time in the old days. Unexpectedly. Someone looks great today. Seven days later, honk, he's gone. Happened all the time. Okay? Uh, you got to pay for a coffin for that dead relative. You can't send him into the afterlife with sparrows picking his eyeballs out of his corpse. He'll be a hungry wandering ghost who feels a sense of wrong and he'll come back and haunt you and curse your, your bed, curse your kitchen, all, all that sort of stuff. You have to send the dead off into the next world properly with proper rituals. You have to hire Confucian experts who are going to preside over the funeral if you can. Uh, But at a bare minimum, you need to buy a wooden coffin for that guy or woman. Um, You cannot just put him into the ground or let him rot. Um, Coffins are expensive. Seems almost comical to us today. Uh, How expensive can five pieces of wood nailed together possibly be? You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised, a coffin for a, de- a, a, a a dead relative, someone gets sick and you have to call in a Taoist expert who comes in with all of his voodoo and potions and this sort of stuff and he communicates with the spirits, G- gives your kids some mercury or something that might even make the, the illness worse. Uh, you got to pay him too. He's not going to come and do, and, and do that for free. Um, so you've got expenses and especially if there is a famine or a flood and your crops are destroyed, then you're in really deep shit. So, in such conditions of extreme hardship, what do you do to get through hard times in a day and age in which you just can't go to the bank and say, I need a loan? Or you can't just apply for a credit card and run up $10,000, $20,000, dollars $40,000 in debt through the you know, prime years of your life. Say, I'll pay it off one day, I'll pay it off one day. No! It's extremely hard for peasants to get credit at anything other than usurious levels, all right, credits out of reach, because the people who actually have money that they could lend, they have no faith whatsoever that you're going to be able to pay that back. They're looking at you, and they're saying, you're a farmer, you're barely getting by, I lend you money, I'm never going to see that money again, much less the interest that I'm going to charge you, all right, they know that tomorrow is not going to be better than yesterday for you, you're probably going down, not up, so we're not giving you credit, so how does a peasant get through tough times? How does he raise credit then? The answer and our topic today is you sell the bodily resources of your family in reverse order of indispensability. And unfortunately for women, women are those bodily resources when seen in reverse order of indispensability. Okay, this is a cruel world we're talking about in which women are seen as property. They are. They are property and they are the property of men. And men often view them in economic terms. Oh, sure, they have, you know, affection and relationships and all this sort of stuff. Uh, But at the end of the day, a woman has a price tag on her. And that price tag is different depending on how old she is, what sort of family she comes from, and what sort of services to say euphemistically she's willing to engage in for economic capital okay now let's talk about what this reverse order of indispensability is what is the most dispensable family bodily resource that a peasant can sell when he is desperate for money and he says i'm desperate but i'm not that desperate yet i just need to raise a little bit of money all right well then your first dispensable family resource is your daughter Or daughters, heck, you're gonna lose them one day anyway. They're gonna marry off into someone else's family, and they're going to be seen as belonging to that family now. And they'll have a few visits back to their natal family, but eventually they're supposed to stop that and fully buy in to their new in-laws' families. Okay, so you're gonna lose them anyways one day. Uh, Having daughters, there was a phrase in Chinese. It's like uh, spilt milk. You can't get the milk back into the container anymore. It's gone. Okay, so daughters are dispensable. They're the first dispensable thing that goes, in fact. Okay, after that, what remains? What remains is the husband, his parents, and a wife, and a son. Well, the husband's not going anywhere, and his parents aren't going anywhere. The husband is the foundational definition of the family unit, and the, as is the son. All right, the male line, the, the line of the father... It's passed down through the sun. Right, so the sun's not going anywhere. That's the last thing you're gonna sell off is your son. That's the whole point of your existence, both for men and women. Men need a son, so they don't feel like their, their their very existence is extinguished when they die. And women need a son because without a son, they have no leverage over the men in their life. A woman gets a son, then she can leverage access and control over her son um, into uh, getting her way with the men around her. Oh, I'm not doing this for me. I'm not being selfish. This isn't what I want. It's the best interest for our son. All right, women can be very savvy. Anyone can be very savvy in manipulating, you know, various moral discourses uh, for your own purposes. So a woman needs a son to be relevant and have power and leverage. Uh, in relation to the men and her mother-in-law who surround her and want to control her. So son's not going anywhere, husband's not going anywhere, those two are gone, you have no family. The parents of the husband, they're not really going to go anywhere either, but even if you were willing to sell them, which I suppose in some circumstances you might, what are you going to get? What are you going to get for a 60, 65-year-old uh, 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 parents in this day and age? All right, a 60, 65-year-old in, in the year 1750 is not a 60, 65-year-old today, <laughs> in which they're like, oh, the 65 today is the new 40. You know, give me a break. And if you're 60, 65 years old, 250 years ago, uh, you're probably pretty decrepit and there's not a whole lot you can do. And you are dependent on the people in your household providing food and money for you because you're probably not producing a whole lot of resources other than child care if you're able to take care of that. If you're still physically able to run around and chase kids and all of that, which I got to tell you, being a father myself, I don't know if I was in that physical state that most people would be in, at, at, in their 60s, 250 years ago. I don't know if I could chase around my son. I really don't know. Um, anyways, so husband, his parents, and any sons, you only sell them if the apocalypse falls on your head. That leaves wives. That leaves wives. Selling your wife. Uh, unfortunately, can take many, many different forms. And this is what we're going to talk about today are the nuances of this. The strategy of last resort before the apocalypse hits and you start selling men, um, which basically means why even exist anymore. The strategy of last resort is to sell your wife's labor and eventually sell your wife. What do you sell? You sell your wife's sexual, reproductive and domestic labor. Sex, Okay, sex for just enjoyment. Uh, Reproductive labor, that's sex uh, to produce a child that will be someone else's heir. Yes, that's called wife selling. We're going to talk about that as well. And there might be enjoyment in that, but that's not the point. The point is that it's sex for procreative purposes. It's reproductive. Um, And then domestic labor, household chores. It's absolutely expected that women take care of the household. Put the laundry away, wash the clothes, do the dishes, make food, clean up, all that sort of stuff. I've got to tell you over and over again, when I read uh, transcripts of Qing court cases, um, what you see oftentimes leading to marital tensions um, is the husband bitching and whining about his wife's not taking care of the house. He says, so she didn't make food for me. Uh, she, she won't clean up. There's clothes everywhere in the house. And that's when they start getting discontented with their wives. Absolutely, there's gendered expectations that they take care of all the housework. Okay, So, for the majority of the population, women's bodies were the only form of credit available when all else fails. The only thing staving off utter disaster. Now, before we get into the ways in which men sold women and viewed them as property, let's first examine how elite Chinese men interacted with women. Because once we understand how the elites interact with women, we'll understand the situation that faces those at the bottom rungs of society. Now... The image that many of you are probably loosely familiar with, if you've had any passing, you know, association or if you ever watched one of these horrible Chinese dramas on TV um, or, you know, flip through some books at the at at, at the library or Barnes and Nobles or something like this. and Oh, the Chinese family. That's this one guy with, you know, all these women and tons of sons and daughters and they all line up for a group photo and they're wearing fairly nice robes. Okay. Um, that mainstream view of the quote-unquote Chinese family comes from like 1% of the entire population. That's the elites who have money, okay? Uh, How do elite families interact with women? They hoard them as resources. It is an inversion of women's roles uh, in in the uh, uh, peasant households. Elite men in China hoard and seclude as many women as possible as a reflection of their elite status. This is polygyny. Polygyny, P-O-L-Y-G-Y-N-Y. Polygyny is one dominant man surrounded by a bevy of women, all of whom are sexually accessible to him, one man, exclusively for the remainder of their life, at least in theory. Of course, you know, some shady stuff might go on on the side, but in theory, they're supposed to be uh, exclusively monogamous with him, although obviously he's not monogamous with any one of them. The way this plays out in elite families is that the man, a wealthy, powerful man usually, will have one primary wife. In addition to his primary wife, the primary wife is the one that you call in, you know, marriage ritual experts and whatnot. You spend tons of money on a marriage for the whole village to see, um, and you make a big to-do about it. All right? Uh, She's the formal face of the women in your family. And then, in addition to her, you have maybe one to ten concubines if you're at the lower lower levels of you know this five percent upper five percent. If you're the emperor, you have thousands of concubines. Um, but for most moderately well-off people, one to ten concubines, whatever you can afford. All right, because it is expensive to have concubines; you have to buy them. Um, You have to purchase them, sometimes from a brothel, sometimes as daughters from destitute families. Um, There's various ways to get a concubine. Uh, Most of them come from circumstances that are less than ideal. Otherwise, you would never consent to be a concubine. From a woman's perspective, you want to be a primary wife. A primary wife has legal uh, authority. Um, if any other women enter the household as concubines, the primary wife has uh, a, a decision-making authority over many matters related to them. Even if the husband transfers his affections to those concubines and starts ignoring the primary wife, uh, she still can make life miserable for those concubines and she can force the husband uh, to stop paying attention to them sometimes because she is in the right. She is the primary wife. Ritual, the state, uh, pu- public perception is on her side. Okay, uh, you know, when uh, the concubines give birth to sons, the primary wife gets to make the decision. She is formally the mother of those sons. The concubine doesn't get to, to get to decide the, the form of education or occupation or, you know, all that sort of stuff that those sons are going to get. Primary wife gets to do that, even though she may not be the biological mother. All right, one primary wife, one to ten concubines, and an army of maidservants, again, women who, uh, if the master so chooses, they're also sexually available to him. Okay, this surplus of women in elite Chinese households is a type of conspicuous consumption. Think of it as a uh, uh, as lu- luxury consumption that is intended to be conspicuous. You want everyone to see that you are able to support and pay for a lot of women. And it's not really about sex. Sure, he gets to have sex with all those women, but it's not really about that. That's not why he's doing it. Most of you would probably, you know, be on board with the following statement that wealthy and powerful men in most times and places in human history, uh, if all they want is sex, they can find ways to get sex without the entanglements of marriage or any sort of formal association. Uh, a concubine, it's its not marriage uh but you do have to bring them into the family you do have to uh, lavish resources on them you have to get nice clothes for them you have to feed them all the kids they're going to produce you have to be able to pay to raise those kids it's expensive having concubines it's expensive and because they're meant to be sort of you know shown off my concubines uh show that i'm a wealthy man you want to give them nice jewelry nice clothes you know their own quarters all that kind of stuff it's very expensive Right, this is conspicuous consumption. This is like going to Prada uh, and buying a bag, buying a, a Louis Vuitton bag all right, or a Gucci bag. Uh, instead of buying a Gucci bag, uh, Chinese men in the old days, they went out and they bought a concubine and they got as many women as they possibly could. I don't know if men buy Gucci bags today anyways, but you understand what analogy I'm trying to make, right? Whatever men use for conspicuous consumption today, it was women in the old days. Right, now it's usually criminalized throughout the world for a man to have more than one wife or even you know, concubines. Uh, but it was totally legal back in the old days. Okay, so instead of the peasant norm of one woman who is surrounded by lots of men who would love to marry her because there's more men than women, the elites are defined by one man surrounded by lots of scarce women because there's not that many women in society. Let me read you a quote by the late Qing Dynasty feminist Jun Haiyin. In, in 1907, she said the following. Title of her essay is On the Question of Women's Labor. She says the following. Quote: In the homes of high officials or large extended families, the number of concubines can reach more than 10. In contrast, in some counties in Jiangsu province, among the lower classes, one woman belongs to many men, or younger and older brothers share a wife in Yangzhou. Peasants who have many sons always provide a wife for the eldest, whereas the sons next in line can never marry. A country with a system of one man and many wives has to have a system of one woman and many husbands. Moreover, there have to be a certain number of men who have no wives at all, and those without wives are sure to be the poor. What she is describing is polyandry, which we're going to be talking about in a moment. One woman, multiple husbands. Now this presents a new way of looking at elite polygyny. One man, many women. If one man takes that many women off of a marriage market in which there is already a a gross gender imbalance, there must be a shortage, an even more exacerbated shortage of women elsewhere. What other differences are there between elite households and non-elite households? Well, in elite households, you have so much money, or you want to at least give the impression you have so much money, when you marry off your daughters, you actually give them a dowry. What is a dowry? It's money, resources, goods, possessions that remain the possession of your daughter as she goes into her new family. Yes, she's going to become a part of another family, uh, but you've actually given her some economic resources uh, that will allow her to have more leverage within that family. And those goods, those economic resources you've given her in the form of a dowry can't be taken away by the family she's married into. That's hers. And if they ever, God forbid, get divorced one day, she gets to take that stuff back with her. It absolutely belongs to her. It's her natal family saying, girls are less important than guys, but because we have so many resources, we're going to show our resources to the world by actually funneling more of our resources into a girl. Imagine that. So take this with you, darling into your family and make sure your your new family knows that you are, you come from a wealthy family that can afford to give you a dowry. What do the poor people do? They have a bride price. It's the exact opposite. I've raised these daughters for all these years at great expense and she's going to go into someone else's household and not provide labor or anything for me when she's gone? Are you kidding me? What do I get out of it? A bride price. It's highly. Okay, a financial ritual literally is what that term means for bride price in Chinese. The financial ritual is, is that you basically say, I will sell my daughter in marriage to another family. Um, and this price, this, this, this bride price has to compensate me for the cost of 13 years of marrying her. Yes, 13 years, because women would get married uh, as soon as possible after puberty. Because after they hit puberty, then the, the, the fear is that they can get pregnant. And if they're pregnant, everyone knows it and her value plummets Because she's not a virgin anymore. And no one's going to want a quote-unquote tainted, impure woman. Um, So yeah, women get married oftentimes between 13 and 16 or so. Whereas men usually get married three or four years after that. Um, So, dowry versus bride price. Remarriage versus chaste widowhood. What does that mean? Uh, Lower classes when your husband dies and your husband... There's a very good chance your husband's going to die. Um... Of course, there's a very good chance the wife's going to die in childbirth, too, because you're constantly giving birth, and many women die in childbirth. Um, Anyways, if your husband dies, a woman from a poor sector of society, the majority of society, she has to remarry. She has no choice. She needs a new husband to pay for the coffin of her dead husband, to pay for any debts he might have to feed her children. It's essential for economic survival that a woman has to remarry. What do the elites think of all this? Well, they don't think much of it. They often say that a woman should only have one man should only be married once in her entire life. Any woman who remarries is immoral and impure. She is betraying the sexual monopoly that her one and only husband had over her when they got married. He may be dead, but he's still your husband. And a woman who remarried was vilified by the literate elites. And she lost a lot of legal privileges. If she remarried, she had to give up her kids. Uh, Usually the in-laws of the dead husband would claim her kids and take them back. Um, She'd lose all access to her former life if she got remarried and she would be seen as a an impure tainted woman and she would probably be mocked and put down uh in you know pejorative accusations of that the rest of her life as you know have have you no shame to remarry um but they had to economic necessity or you might starve okay Uh, The elite said that what a woman should do is she should be a chaste widow. Even if your husband dies when you're 21 years old and you live to be 80, you should live 60 years and never have sex with another man ever. That's chaste widowhood. That shows that you're defending your husband's monopoly over your body till the day you die. And if you actually went 40, 50, 60 years of being a chaste widow, never remarrying, uh, sometimes the imperial state would even set up a shrine or a plaque to you, a public memorial saying, wow, look at this chaste woman. Everyone should emulate her. Not surprisingly, only rich women could do this. They could only, only rich women could aspire to the ideal of chaste widowhood. Poor women can't aspire to that. Are you kidding me? And then finally, foot binding. The elites. Instead of sending their daughters to take the, the civil service exams and invest in an education, uh, you, take, you, you, you demonstrate to the world that you've taken your daughter out of productive labor that could contribute financially to the family, because you don't need it, uh, by having her, her, her feet bound and immobilizing her as much as possible. Now the poor classes will try to bound the feet of their women as well because it'll help secure a more lucrative marriage. Uh, but oftentimes the women are have to move around and work and be on their feet all the time. They don't always get to bind their feet all that well, and they'll have sort of half-bound feet, feet in various states of boundedness, um, and you know which will affect the eventual bride price that they will get. Because they have to work, you want to feel sorry for people who have who have to engage in foot binding. Um, I would, if if I had to make a choice, I would feel a little more sorry for the lower classes because they have to bind their feet and continue to work their entire lives. Uh, whereas the wealthy, rich women, they bind their feet, um, but they're not expected to move around or actually engage in physical labor with those bound feet. All right, so all textual and legal discourses on Chinese women are refracted to us today as historians through the ideals of the elites. The elites hoard scarce women and wealth. Then they condemn the poor for failing to conform to elite ideals of sexual propriety and gender performance. Ideals that are only attainable in conditions of wealth. The elites define what is illegal, what is immoral, what is perverse without regard to the economic conditions that necessitate such practices what are those practices let's go into life among the rural poor. For the rural poor monogamy one man one woman was the ideal and the reality let's you know the reality for the majority of the population. but it was the reality it was a precarious reality. All peasants knew that monogamy was a blessing and a luxury that might have to be mortgaged in times of crisis. Okay, in times of crisis, you might have to do something that mortgages that that compromises the ideals of monogamy. That's the only thing a peasant can aspire to. He's not going to be able to aspire to uh, having any concubines. Just if I can just have this, I can buy a wife in my life. I can buy a wife and keep her till the day I die. I'll be a lucky man. A peasant wants to buy three things in his life. He saves up all of his money for three things. He wants to buy an ox. He wants to buy land. Those are related, right? You want to buy a a plot of land and then an ox to help you till it. And then you want to buy a woman, a wife to help you run your household and create heirs. And a peasant gets all three of those things. He dies a happy man. But you might have to lose some of those things. Uh, The wife is one of the first things you acquire. And often your parents help you acquire a wife. You know, the man himself didn't afford it. His parents paid for the wife. They paid the bride price. Okay, now, before we get into how you mortgage your wife's labor, how you mortgage your marriage, uh, before you sell your wife's labor, let's talk about what you sell first, your daughter. Okay, before you sell your wife, she's number two down on the list of dispensability. Uh, Number one is the daughter, though. Okay, from uh, uh, you you sell your daughter because you're going to lose her anyways. So you try to recoup whatever cost you can get at an age before she can usually be married off. Now, what forms does the daughter sale usually take? Uh, It's going to take usually two forms. You can be sold as an adopted daughter-in-law to another family, or you're likely going to end up mm, as, you know, by shady entrepreneurs who are going to raise you into a brothel and take you into prostitution in the sex industry. Um, You know, from the perspective of your daughter, if if, if your parents are going to sell you, the most quote-unquote desirable sale was probably the first one. As an adopted daughter-in-law to another family. What is an adopted daughter-in-law to another family? It's a cheaper way for a family who's looking for a bride for their son. It's a cheaper way for them to procure a future daughter-in-law without having to pay the exorbitant bride price that will accompany her when she hits puberty. A family who raises a daughter all the way to 13 or 14 and then starts shopping her around as someone's bride is going to demand peak price. No discount whatsoever. But let's say disaster hits this family when that daughter is four years old. Then the father can say, all right, let's shop her around now. She's 10 years too early. We could have gotten a huge bride price in 10 years for her to compensate us for the cost of raising her. Uh, But let's see what we can get for her at age four. It's going to be a lot less than a bride price. You're going to have to give a significant discount. You're transferring the burden of raising that daughter to another family. Now, why does the other family, why are they interested in this discount? Because they're doing the math and they're thinking, how the hell are we ever going to afford a bride price in 10 years for our son? Or maybe we want to get another, another wife for our second son. We can afford the first son's wife. but We can't afford the second son's wife. How are we going to do this? Here, this is your here, here is your solution. You adopt a daughter-in-law. You buy their daughter, bring her into your family, and then raise her as your own. But basically, she's already betrothed. To the son you want her to marry, it's expected if she survives, and she may not survive. Uh, but if both the son and the daughter that you just bought survive past puberty, they will be married. So you are assuming the cost of raising that girl from, let's say, the age of four until age of thirteen. You pay for that on your own now, um, but the cost of that is still going to be substantially less than if you raise some other family, if you let some other family raise her, and then pay them the full bride price. Okay, so like I said, this is a relatively okay, you know, okay, uh, you know, not so horrible option from the daughter's perspective to be sold as an adopted daughter-in-law. All right, because you don't have choice who you marry anyways. I mean, it's not like you had choice in who you might marry one day and now that choice has been taken away. Uh, Adults are always going to decide who you marry. Um, So nothing's really changed from your perspective other than the fact that your parents are no longer your biological parents. Um, But they are parents who have a vested interest in you being healthy and reaching adulthood because you're going to be their future daughter-in-law. Okay. Um, As I said, any other sale? Uh, Maybe this is a circumstance in which a man is trying to get uh, sort of, you know, a cheap concubine. uh, Raising, you know, it's the same kind of idea. Raising it as a future um, uh, wife. uh, Not primary wife, obviously, but uh, as a concubine. It'll be cheaper than buying a concubine straight from a brothel or, you know, a a high-class courtesan or something like that. Um, And then, of course, there are the predatory institutions in cities far away in which they will purchase daughters. They may even say We're, we are middlemen and we will find uh, a family to sell her to and she'll be an adopted daughter-in-law, but that could very well be a lie and they're actually going to take her to a brothel uh, or for very other unspeakable abuses um, and then that's you know very unfortunate indeed. All right, daughters are all gone. Or maybe you didn't have any daughters in the first place. Now your decision is wife or the son. Oh, well, faced with the imminent loss of a son, the very point of your existence, Uh, most wives, not just the husband, even the wives, the mother of that son, will willingly participate in one of several strategies to raise credit, to raise money. Now, we can divide these into uh, the woman's likely uh, uh, forms of female labor relating to her body that she likely undertakes with her consent and those that she likely undertakes without her consent. Okay, Um, let's talk about these. Uh, Polyandry. Polyandry. What is polyandry? Polyandry is when uh, a family, a husband and wife, invite a second man into the home who lives with them and is basically her second husband. And then he shares, as second husband, he shares in the wife's sexual, reproductive, and domestic labor in exchange for economic support of that family. Okay, just below that is what scholars refer to as transactional polyamory. (laughs) Alright, sort of a mouthful of a phrase, polyamory, multiple love, basically, alright? This is when uh, it's not so formal as a polyandrous relationship, in which the wife and the husband invite perhaps two to four regular male patrons who partake in the wife's sexual and domestic labor temporarily in exchange for economic support of the family, but often they won't live with the family. They'll come and go. All right. Polyandry and polyamory almost always involve the wife's willing consent for reasons that we'll talk about momentarily. Um, Things that are more extreme. Conditional and permanent wife sales. Men would sell their wives. This also usually involved the consent of the wife. All right, uh, now wife sales, polyandry, polyamory, all of this was totally illegal by the standards of the elites and those who are actually in charge of the government. It's totally illegal. They, they interpreted it as a man pimping out his wife, a man who allows, who condones sexual relationship between his wife and another man. Uh, he, he is, by definition, in the eyes of the law, uh, a pimp, and that is to be punished that is to be punished he is allowing her his wife to engage in illicit sex okay but these practices were pervasive in the countryside and impossible to eradicate in practice why one no one had a better solution to overpopulation poverty and imbalanced sex ratios two women themselves were usually willing participants and they saw it as the least bad option to get out of the dire straits in which the, that family found themselves in one third of polyandry court cases that have come down to us from the Qing dynasty, the wife took the initiative entirely herself. Sometimes even the husband was resistant to it. I don't know if I want to do this. Invite another man into our home. And it was the wife who said, this is the only way we're going to make ends meet. And you better get on board. The bottom line is that a wife wants to maintain custody over her son, which is her only claim to power, autonomy, and leverage in a world dominated by men in a male patriarchy. That's redundant. You can't have a female patriarchy, can you? Alright, so polyandry, multiple husbands, one wife, was the least bad strategy for retaining a link to her son. Wife sale kicks you out of the family. It's sort of like remarriage, but not sanctioned by any legal authority. And prostitution, which we're going to talk about, that truly sucks. All right, you, that, that is the last resort. All right. Now, let's get into polyandry. What is the economic rationale and prevalency of polyandry? Polyandry exists, is seen as a survival strategy because it raises the ratio of family laborers to consumers in the household. It essentially brings in a healthy, working adult male who does not bring with him additional mouths to feed other than his own. He doesn't bring children with him or his own wife. Okay? And he's in the prime of his life, so he's a good worker. And he brings in money. He brings in far more resources than he consumes on his own. Okay, The families that are most willing to initiate polyandry had a high ratio of mouths to feed, i.e. kids and elders, versus very few adult laborers. The kids aren't, aren't working, or if they are working, they're not producing as much as, a, as an adult. And the elderly people, like I said, if they're 65 in the year 1750, they're pretty decrepit most likely, and they aren't producing much either. Now, the precipitating event that would force people or uh, uh, give people an incentive to engage in polyandry was an incapacitating illness of the first husband or other sort of fi- financial setback. Thus, the phrase in Chinese that was used to describe what polyandry was. It was described in court documents as Chao fu, yang fu, getting a husband to support a husband. Getting a husband to support a husband. How prevalent was polyandry? Let's read this quote from the Gansu province, Investigations of Customs, a document from the late Qing dynasty. Quote, this evil custom of getting a husband to support a husband exists almost everywhere in the province. It seems likely, therefore, that to enforce the law and prohibit it would pose an immediate threat to the survival of a very large portion of the population. There you go. That's the elites themselves looking down on the practice and telling you, it's everywhere in order to survive. Families have to engage in this polyandrous strategy. Now, what is the agenda and motivation for the incoming man, i.e. the second husband? He harbors no illusions. The incoming man is often just as dirt poor as the family he joins. Okay? But by joining this new family, he has access to the perks and delights and resources of uh, of a family unit that he could never afford on his own. And because he's unencumbered, he has no dependence, He only has his own mouth to feed, and yet he works hard in the prime of his life. So he brings in good resources. He could never afford the bride price of a primary wife. He knows he can't afford that, which means he can never fulfill the ultimate Confucian filial obligation to your parents, which is to produce a son that carries on the the, the uh, male line. Now that's serious business. If you've if you've come to the conclusion, I'm never going to get a wife. I can't possibly afford a wife. What are you going to do? You need a son. And with no wife, there's no son. As many as one in five adult males would never marry. There are not enough women to go around, and those that do exist are often too expensive for most men and their families. Sometimes it's it's a young man whose wife has already died. And that's just as bad for him. Because when his wife dies, they're in their 20s or 30s and his, and his first wife dies, maybe she hasn't actually uh, produced a male heir yet. Or she has and they keep dying because kids die all the time in the old days. Child Infant and child mortality was through the roof. That's why you don't even give a proper name to your son for until he's like three or four years old because you think, I'm not going to get emotionally invested in this thing. He's probably going to die. So sometimes it'll be a widowed young man who says, well, oh, I lost my whole damn investment in my first wife. Yeah, 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 I'm sad she's gone. Blah, blah, blah. But I'm, I'm, I'm hurting here. I still need a son. And all that money I spent on this woman is gone. And I have no son to, to, to show for it. I can't possibly raise a second bride price in my life. Are you kidding me? I can't afford to remarry. So Polyandry offers such men the prospect of a family life and access to female labor, sexual, reproductive, and domestic that he could never hope to achieve on his own. And oftentimes, as part of this arrangement, he'll obtain rights to future sons uh, who will adopt his surname. They'll actually drop a contract. They'll drop a contract in which they say, uh, we're entering into this relationship and I'm going to provide X number of money every single week or month or year or whatever it is to help support this family because the husband is sick, he can't work or whatever. A natural disaster has hit and, they, and they're and they on the verge of having to sell their, their wife or son and totally destroy the family. So I'm coming in to help them out. And in exchange for my help, the next baby that that wife produces is mine. And that baby will have my surname. And then maybe after three or four years, I'll leave the family and go my own way. And they would put this all in writing. Now, biologically, we know that there's no way to guarantee he's the father. It could be the first husband who's the father of the next son. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. They didn't do DNA testing back then. I so say it doesn't matter. The next son that comes out is mine. And they might even put a clause in there about how, only you know, this only counts as, as, as the one son I'm entitled to if he lives beyond three or four years old or whatever. Now, how do you present polyandry to the outside world? It's illegal. Officially, it's illegal. So, there's various ways that it was concealed to the outside world. You would say that the second husband is my uncle. He's a cousin. He's a godfather. All right. But the most common way was to describe him as a sworn brother of the first husband. A form of sort of chosen kinship or fictive kinship, similar to secret societies. In which you say, you know, we're, we're very, very close. We, we, we didn't come from the same parents. We're not related by blood. But in tough times, we formed a bond and we look out for each other. And we fill the void left by the biological ties that have failed us in life. So yeah, we just have a sworn brother living with us. And oftentimes we'll try to leave it at that. But if anyone actually were to inquire and find out what's going on, they would just say, hey, sworn brothers share everything. Okay. And the primacy of the importance of male friendship and the sworn brotherhood among men is so important. But yeah, sometimes I let my, the, my sworn brother sleep sleep with my wife because that's what sworn brothers do. We look out for each other and we share everything. Okay? Usually, though, you leave it intentionally ambiguous, and most people are like, I don't know if they have sex or not. Unless you hear noise at night, uh, you don't really know, and you just say, okay, there's another man living there, and they've got a special relationship. I don't know what they do at night. And leave it at that. Now, instances of conflict. When does polyandry lead to conflict? Well, we know it led to conflict, because we only learn about it when it leads to conflict. Okay? Because it's illegal. It's not like there are court documents condoning a legal practice that tell us, well, this is what's going on. No, 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 no. Polyandry only appears in Ching, in Ching archives when things went bad, when violence was involved, and suddenly the courts had to learn about it and go, what the hell is going on here? Because if you're engaging in polyandry, you don't let the authorities know because you know you're all going to get in trouble. You're all going to get beaten up and punished. Because that's illegal. That's immoral from their point of view. So... How do these things get into Qing Archives? How does it come to the attention of the local magistrate, who is shocked and appalled by what he sees? All right? Um, irresolvable conflict usually arose from two developments. The First, the first husband recovers from his setback if he was ill, or if he was sick or he had a broken arm. "Hey, I'm back, baby. I'm ready to work." And one of the ways I'm going to reclaim my dignity is to get that second guy out of here who's having sex with my wife. Get out of here. And of course, the second husband's like, Whoa, 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 we have a contract, dude, that we wrote up two years ago, in which we said, blah, 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 blah. And you're going to renege on that now? I don't think so. And then fisticuffs ensue. And someone dies or gets seriously hurt. The courts are going to hear about it. Or two. The second husband, the guy who came into the family, loses his ability to contribute economically. And the wife terminates access to her sexual, domestic, and reproductive labor. They say, you came in on a contract in which you said you're going to provide X, Y, and Z and economic support for our family. Uh, For whatever reason, you can't provide that anymore. And I was only willing to make you dinner, clean your clothes, have your babies, and have sex with you when you were providing for our family. Now, you're ill or you broke your leg or for whatever. You gambled away all of your money instead of giving it to us as the contract stipulated. Uh, Access to my resources is over. Now, if homicide is the result, the case will come to the attentions of the courts. Okay. It really has to be homicide. It has to be an extreme denomination. because uh, no one wants us to go into the courts because you know everyone's going to get punished because it's illegal on all fronts. The courts officially saw it as a crime of, quote, and this is from the Qing Law Code, abetting or tolerating one's wife or concubine to engage in illicit sexual intercourse with another man. In other words, it's condoned adultery. And it will result in at least 90 blows of heavy bamboo for, the, for, for both the, the, the woman and both men, both husbands, along with compulsory divorce. That's serious shit, man. So you don't want this to go to the, 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 come to the attention of the magistrates unless all hell breaks loose and someone dies. Anything short of homicide, you're going to try to resolve this locally within the community. Because everyone knows shit hits the fan if the magistrate uh, gets involved. Everyone's getting at least 90 blows of the heavy bamboo. 90 blows of the, heavy, of the heavy bamboo, that can kill a person back in the days before good medical care. It really can. The welts and the blood and the infections and all that, you could easily die from 90 blows of the heavy bamboo. And then compulsory divorce, even if you survive it, you're losing your, 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 your wife now. Everyone who's invested in that woman loses their investment. What are the attitudes of community members, the natal family, if they learn that their daughter is engaging in this, or the neighbors, if they do hear noises at night and they're like, "Uh uh-oh, I know what's going on over there. This isn't just sworn brothers. Well, polyandry usually resulted from the voluntary initiative of the husband and the wife. It's almost impossible to sustain if otherwise. Why? Because if the wife doesn't want to do it, all she has to do is tell people, hey, My husband's trying to invite another husband in and force me to have illicit sex. That's illegal. And the magistrates would go, you're damn right, that's illegal. And they'd get involved. So if you're going to engage in something that you know is an illegal practice, and you're not like under the control of a scary brothel owner or gangsters or something like that, it's just your husband, um, you can absolutely sabotage his plans to do that. Uh, by just bringing it to the attention of the public authorities. And they'll say, yeah, this is totally illegal. Your husband can't do this to you. So usually polyandry women are, are, are fully consenting. They realize this is my best, least distasteful option for retaining control over my son and not breaking up the family. Okay. Um, and what about outsiders, family, neighbors and whatnot? Even if they disapprove, they had no better solution and they had no incentive to bring it to the attention of the authorities either, unless they had a solution for poverty. Do you have a solution for backbreaking poverty in an age in which there are no credit cards and no one's going to give you a loan? No, I didn't think so. I don't have a solution either. So what are you going to do if you see something like this going on? And even if you think, wow, that's immoral, how can she be doing that? How can he be doing that? Well, we have a quote in one of the court cases from a brother-in-law of the wife who was doing this, who disapproved, but he said the following. He said, quote, I saw my younger sister always going in and out of Yusahan's room. And finally, I couldn't bear the sight of it any longer, so I went over and tried to talk to my brother-in-law. But he just said, quote, we poor people can't afford to abide by those moral rules. If you have money, then you can have face. But if you don't have money, then you can't have face. And he got angry at me for not minding my own business. After that, I didn't bother them anymore. What am I going to do? I don't have any better solutions to poverty. They're trying to fix it on their own. I don't like it, what they're doing, but... It's a, it is something of a solution, isn't it? Sometimes, if, there's, if your relatives have some sort of resources and money or a public image that they want to protect, they might get involved. But powerful and respected family lineages and clans are scarce among the dirt poor, and it's unlikely that you're going to be driven to, the, to, to, to having to uh, take recourse to polyandry if you have any relatives who have any money whatsoever. If the lineage was resourceful, they would have been able to prevent such bone-crushing poverty in the first place. So in the end, there was a social stigma, and there was gossip. But so long as the husband and wife are willing and no violence results, and that was the majority of the cases of polyandry, no outsider is going to get involved and thus the courts will never be aware of it. Now, did polyandry empower women? Oh, what a hell of a question to ask. Professor Jacobs, you're so cold and misogynist. How can you possibly ask a question like this? Obviously, this is horrible exploitation of women within a, 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 a crushing, unfeeling male patriarchy. <laughs> well, sure it is. But take a look at the court cases. Take a look at the evidence. And you'll find the following. No one really wanted to engage in polyandry. Monogamy is the aspirational ideal for everyone. But once it happened, could a woman standing in the family actually be enhanced? Consider the following. Polyandry heightened the scarcity of the commodity that women provided to men and increased the number of men around her who depended on her services. If we think of polyandry as a form of women's sideline labor, another way to bring in multiple income streams in unconventional ways, then she becomes the effective head of the household and its chief breadwinner. Remember, the first husband agreed to this situation because he can't provide enough for the family in the first place. He knows he's inadequate financially and he needs another man, another producer in relation to the number of consumers into the family. So now, the survival of the family depends on the wife. She wields actual power. Don't take my word for it. Let me read you some uh, a, a quote from a Qing court case. A 1757 case showing the wife's response. This is recorded verbatim in the Qing court transcript when they, when you know homicide resulted. Showing the wife's response after the husband accuses her of spending his money. She yelled at him back, she said, don't you forget, I'm using my body to earn Du Guisheng's money in order to support you. How is it possible for me to steal your money? Those are powerful words. She's basically saying, I made this money, God damn it, It's my body that we're selling. So there's no such thing as this is all your money. I made this money. I have a claim to it. And I have power over you. So watch what you say to me and what you do because I'm the real breadwinner in this family. Now, unfortunately, this case probably ended up in the archives. I forget the exact circumstances, but it probably ended up in the archives because the husband probably then killed her and it came to the attention of the authorities. Um, But again, uh, the cases that actually come to the authorities are a minority of what actually existed in, 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 in society at large. And you have to assume that many women felt the exact same way and maybe they didn't express it as forcefully or maybe the husbands just weren't homicidal maniacs and didn't actually kill their wife when they heard something like that. Alright, but you can see the dynamic there. And heck, you also don't want to take that, or me, as your, uh, your uh, uh, evidence. We have no less an illustrious personage than Mao Zedong in 1926, after surveying the customs of the countryside early on in the communist movement and trying to see, you know, how do the peasants live and whatnot? How do we gain their support? He said the following in his 1926 report. Mao Zedong, quote, As to the authority of the husband, this has always been weaker among the poor peasants. Because out of economic necessity, their womenfolk have to do more manual labor than the women of the richer classes, and therefore, they have more say and greater power of decision over family matters. In sexual matters, poor peasant women also have relatively more freedom. Among the poor peasant class, triangular and multilateral relationships are almost universal. Triangular and multilateral relationships. That's code for polyandry. Or polyamory. That's code for women have sex with more men than just their husband. They financially profit off of it. And this new financial profit increases her standing and power and leverage within her family. Because she's the breadwinner. Okay. Okay, so much for polyandry, polyamory. Let's talk about more serious stuff here. (laughs) It's all serious. But, I mean, we're going down the scale of desperate reactions to desperate circumstances. Selling your wife. Okay? Selling your wife. Like, real selling. Not, I'm selling my wife's labor and my wife physically remains in my household and we're married. We're talking selling your wife. And she physically leaves the house. This is prostitution and wife sales. Okay? Any form of prostitution or a wife sale had a high likelihood of breaking up the family permanently. Either intentionally or unintentionally. Once the daughters are gone... Uh, If you're not going to engage in polyandry for whatever reason, okay, uh, next step, wife engages in prostitution or the husband sells his wife. Again, all legal from the point of view of the magistrates in the Qing courts. So you got to do all this stuff without having it come to the attention of the authorities or else everyone's going to get beaten with the bamboo rod. What about prostitution? One thing that we know, and this is something that people often don't know if you haven't studied the subject, is that the majority of prostitutes... Throughout history are married women. Okay. They're married women who are trying to support their family and they hope to return to their family after the prostitution stint is over. Prostitution tends to be more distasteful from the perspective of the woman. Okay. Because she loses control of her fate. She doesn't have control over her customers. Um, she loses control over her body and her physical living conditions to the husband who maybe authorizes the prostitution or, uh, the, uh, pimp. Okay. The pimp in a distant city, uh, or the madam of a brothel. All right. They control her much more tightly and she loses the ability to operate from her own home. Okay. Polyandry usually enhanced the wife's control over family finances and gave her some measure of power over her husband. Now, if you're going to be engaging in prostitution, the least awful version is prostitution with your husband as pimp. All right, he's selling you out and he's finding customers. Okay, um, presumably, this is a big presumably. The husband's probably a kinder pimp than a total stranger, but don't take my word for that. There can be some pretty, pretty horrible husbands out there as well that may actually be much worse than a than a pimp in an impersonal relationship. The most awful version, though, of prostitution, the thing that most women would resist and they would only do as, you know, a very desperate last resort, was prostitution in an urban brothel. And if you're from the countryside, that means you're being separated geographically from your family a great distance. Prostitution in an urban brothel for a fixed period of time, usually seven years, you sign a contract and you go out there and you're surrounded by strangers. You have no support network. You have no exit strategy other than to fulfill the terms of your contract, which usually extends for several years. However, compensation to your family is probably very attractive. What do you get if you go to a brothel and work in this sort of prostitution? A no interest loan. The, the brothel will give your family, your husband, and you know he's going to use that loan to support your son, which is what this is all about ultimately, right? Bringing your, bringing your, your, your son up. Um, it's a no interest loan. All you got to do is pay back the principal on the loan. The interest is the wife's labor in the brothel. Her having sex with all the customers, that's the interest that the brothel is, 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 is profiting off of. So the loan, all you got to do is pay it back, the, the principal, on a one-to-one basis with no interest. That's good credit for a peasant. Yes, you had to stoop down to selling your wife as a prostitute in fairly unsavory conditions for both man and woman. Uh, but as far as loans go, raising credit, this is one of the most attractive forms you can get. It better be because it's a pretty awful situation for the woman. These favorable loan terms are unheard of for poor peasants. All too often, however, any form of prostitution, whether the husband's running it or whether a brothel's running it, is a very slippery slope. And even though the intent is to reconstitute the family as a whole unit afterwards, and if you're in a city, most uh, prostitutes in a city, they intend to go back to their family. They intend to give up prostitution and go back to the family once they've made enough money. It's not always possible to to reconstitute the family afterwards. It can be very difficult. And oftentimes, this does bring disaster to the family. If you're not into prostitution, if you really say, this is really distasteful, I don't know if I can do this, all right, a reasonable reaction. Uh, You can try to rent your wife or sell your wife. I know, I know, it sounds horrible. It sounds horrible. The very phrase, renting your wife, my God, what does that mean? Do you even want to know what that means? You, 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 You can click off the podcast right now before you hear what it means to rent your wife, Okay, Um, let's begin with conditional wife sales, and then we'll move into permanent wife sales. A conditional wife sale was referred to, colloquially in Chinese, as renting a wife, it operated on the same economic logic as polyandry. It gave a man too poor to afford a normal bride price a chance to have a proper family at a discount. Maybe he's already married, but he's married to a woman who can't bear kids, or can't bear sons, or the sons keep dying. So this becomes a poor man's temporary concubine. He can't afford a permanent concubine. Let me rent a concubine. Let me rent a second wife for a couple of years. See if she can provide sons. I see that she has lots of sons in her first family. And she has so many sons, she can't support them all. But she doesn't want to give up any of her sons. She doesn't want to sell her son. She doesn't want to be a prostitute. And I know that she's very fertile. And she has a tendency to give birth to sons. So can I rent, sir, can I rent your wife? for a few years, get a son or two from her, I'll keep the sons, obviously, they'll have my surname, and then I'll give your wife back. The buyer is chiefly interested in the woman's reproductive labor, though, obviously, if the woman comes to live with him, uh, he'll get domestic and sexual labor as well. She might not necessarily live with him, she might just make visits to him, for sex, obviously, uh, for reproductive, procreative purposes, let's put it that way, um, and then go back to her family home. Okay, and that's not really the same as prostitution. It's not not an impersonal pimp in some distant city, and the wife probably has some measure of control over what sort of, you know, second husband that she's going with. The difference with polyandry is that she leaves the home. Uh, The man doesn't come into the home. Uh, She leaves the home to live with another man or have sex with another man and then comes back or eventually hopes to come back because it's a conditional wife sale. It's temporary. The contract, and they'll write up a contract, will clearly state the length of labor anywhere from three to ten years. And sometimes it'll even specify, oh, you know, the, the, the wife that we're renting, uh, she has to be willing to breastfeed any sons that she produces to make sure that the, we give the son the best chance possible to survive. Okay, even if she gives birth to a son at the end of her contract period, uh, no, 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 you have to agree. She's going to breastfeed that son even beyond the three years of the contract, and I'm not going to pay anything extra for it because we want to make sure the son survives. That's the whole point of a temporary wife sale. Let me read off a contract for you. 1746, a temporary wife sale contract. Quote, Chen Yuanfu hereby establishes this conditional sale contract. The situation is as follows. I have a wife named Qi Shi. Now the harvest has failed, leaving me with no means to pay the land tax or get enough food to eat. And in addition, I am handicapped by illness. For these reasons, I can no longer support my wife. And so I am willing to sell her conditionally to Mr. Yang as wife so that he can secure his own line of descent. For conditionally selling my wife, I, Yuan Fu shall receive 24 taels of silver, and when 10 years have passed, I may redeem her. This sum of money has today been paid in full. If in the future, if any other party should raise this matter or threaten litigation, then I, the first husband, shall take full responsibility on my own without in any way involving the conditional buyer. There is no deceit involved, and we have acted voluntarily. In the future, there will be no regret or change of heart. Fearing that spoken words alone are not reliable, I hereby establish this conditional sale contract to serve as proof forever. The original kids, for the wife who goes off and is temporarily rented out to another man, they stay with the husband, since the expectation is that the mother will eventually return to the original family after she's served out her term as a rented wife. Occasionally, the buyer, the purchaser, the the renter of the wife might end up seeing if he can buy out his conditional wife at the end of the term. If the husband's circumstances have gotten even worse, and they think, oh God, this still isn't enough to help us survive, um, maybe, you know, he'll, 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 he'll buy out the rented wife, and for him, it'll still be cheaper than a proper bride price. Um, and for the original husband, you'll still be getting a nice infusion of cash that you wouldn't otherwise have. All such sales were officially illegal, but widespread. It achieved a temporary alleviation of poverty and gave a second poor man heirs that he could never have afforded through legal options. Permanent wife sales. Permanent wife sales are the result of either Armageddon, (laughs) the world crashes down upon you, extreme marital discord, or very often both, because marital discord is often related to economic hardship. It's pretty tough to have a harmonious marriage when you're scrounging for pennies every single day. All right, with permanent wife sales, there's no chance that the wife ever returns. She may even take her kids with her, the man's kids, depending on the negotiation and the circumstances. Okay, oftentimes the first husband is so destitute that his kids will go with the wife into her new family to ensure the kids' survival. Because the husband knows I can't even raise these kids anymore. That's how bad things have gotten. And in the contract, they'll even write up language that says the new husband who's buying my wife, he's obligated to look after my kids and raise them and they will retain my surname so I can at least die in a ditch somewhere knowing that my son is going to survive. My line will not be extinguished even though he's being raised by another man. And I've lost my wife. Okay. Uh, In wife sales, the majority of the women are sold as primary wives to other poor men who are unable to afford a full bride price. Again, it's a form of a discount bride price for other men. Okay. Looks are totally irrelevant here. You're not buying it, you know, to show off to other men and whatnot. Only fertility mattered. Okay. She needs to be younger than like 40, you know, 40 years old uh, to the point where it's still likely she might be able to produce kids. Um, And if she's previously given birth to sons, that's a big plus in her favor, because they'll say, oh, good, you know, she has a a proclivity for for giving birth to sons. They didn't know back then that it was totally random. Um, You know, this is opposite of those who are sold as concubines or go to brothels, in which looks are far more important and fertility much less so. Okay. Now, from the first husband's perspective, this is an absolute last resort, because it's unlikely he'll ever get enough money again to afford a second wife. And he knows it. He knows it. That's why his kids often leave him as well. Uh, because he knows that he can't support anything on his own. He might even be on the way to be to, to, to dying here. They had a phrase for this in Chinese. They described it as to survive by breaking up the family. Give everyone a fresh start, and it gives the first husband an emergency infusion of cash. How poor were the men who sold their wives? You've got to be pretty damn poor to sell one of the greatest investments of your entire life. Well, we have a court case describing one man by the name of Yi Shang Song who is described as a malnourished four feet ten, dressed in rags so full of holes that his genitals were partly exposed. When he later was found dead by the side of the road, someone else was offered his clothes after his death, and these clothes were refused because they were so worthless. That's bone-crushing poverty for you. In extant court cases, 80% of wife sales were due to poverty, which, again, often overlapped with marital discord due to hardship. There's a quote from an 18th century wife sale contract. "Quote: My wife and I quarrel at night and day. My, 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 sorry, my wife and I quarrel night and day over the most trivial things without any resolution. The reason is that we are very poor and have trouble getting our daily food. Now, since I am short on money to cover my expenses, I am voluntarily willing to marry my wife off to another man." Court testimonies also show that most sold wives actually wanted to leave their husband and the situation which had accrued around that husband. Because it's pretty miserable for her too, and she fears for the welfare of her own kids. Okay, the only sticking point was the fate of the relationship with her children. Would she be able to take the children with her? If she didn't, would the children survive with the husband? Could she visit the children? This is the things that were worked out in negotiations. This is a world we cannot imagine today. The things that would drive people to these sort of straits. What are the economics of wife sales? Well, most wives were sold just before Chinese New Year, uh, January, February, when debts are due. Debts, you got to pay off all your debts. Chinese New Year. Average price of a wife sale, 15 to 30 silver tails. Okay, that's what you get for uh, a wife sale. It's less than a bride price. Okay, a bride price might be double that. Okay, so you can see, obviously, a wife sale um, is going to be cheaper than a bride price. Otherwise, uh, men would have no incentive to buy someone else's used wife, so to speak. They would just buy a pristine virgin wife. Okay, Sellers are always poor men. But sometimes the buyers are going to be people who may not be necessarily that poor. Maybe they're petty bourgeoisie shopkeepers, merchants, you know, clerks who work in the local government at a very low level, and they're saying, how can I get a cheap concubine? How can I get the, the cheap material trappings of elite status? Let me buy someone else's wife. Let me take advantage of a man who's in desperation. Let me give you an idea of what 15 to 30 tails represents. What are the annual wages in the 18, in the 17, 1800s in China? Roughly speaking, an agricultural laborer, i.e. a peasant, might make five to seven silver tails per year. Per year. That's about a third or a fourth of the price of a wife sale. So if you sell your wife, you're getting four years' salary right off the bat, okay? Um, if you want to buy a wife and you're a peasant, you know, you might need to work, save up 10, 15 years' worth of wages to be able to buy a wife, which is why you need the help of your parents, usually, to buy a wife. All right, so five to seven tails for a peasant. Modest landlord rental income, 130 tails. Um, a county magistrate who works in the government, 30,000 tails! Good God. A governor of a province, 180,000 tails. Whew oh boy, these people are rich. You can see the extreme disparity of wealth, right? Now, governors and magistrates, they have to pay a lot of things out of that salary. It's not all you know, take-home pay, so to speak. They have to pay for their staffs. They have to host people. They have social functions. They have to throw banquets. These are all very expensive, and that money comes out of your salary. But even when you, you, you deduct all these things they have to pay for, it's still an, a perverse amount of money. It really is. Okay? So, you know, Two to four years wages for your poor peasant if he's willing to sell his wife. All right? Or buy a wife, if you're looking to buy a wife. Two to four year wages for a poor peasant, as opposed to maybe 10 to 15 years of wages. Difficult, but not out of reach for a frugal saver. 1736 case of a wife sale in Shanxi province. Quote, in the past, I could never afford to take a wife. But I realized that buying Wang Xi's wife would be less expensive than other options. And on top of that, she would bring a child with her. So I agreed, and I told the matchmaker to offer Wang Si 24 tails. 24 tails is a lot of money. Now, why are wife sales cheaper than bride prices? We've already talked about it before, but it's worth going over again. There's a social stigma. Remarriage is shameful. Remarriage is shameful. Legal remarriage. Your husband dies, or you get a legal divorce, and then you remarry. That's shameful enough. But to be remarried with a living husband... All right? uh, to be sold as a wife, that's even worse. It's more shameful. In both circumstances, the wife is usually delivered to the new husband at night. And they try to keep her away. The path of how she is delivered to the husband uh, is kept away from any land that that husband might own because it's thought that uh, she'll bring bad luck to the crops. The crops won't grow. The fertility will be ruined if a woman is so immoral as to get remarried again. All right? And they're delivered at night because it's so shameful. You don't want everyone to see her. It's not something to be celebrated. In fact, the original in-laws, if they learn about their wife being sold to another man, not that their daughter-in-law being sold to another man, they might even demand extra money as part of the wife sale to, quote, cover their shame. Because it's so shameful what's happening. It's also cheaper because it's illegal. As we said, to the courts, a wife sale contract was evidence of a crime. It's condoned adultery. Two-thirds of all contracts, wife sale contracts that turn up in court were torn up the wife was returned to her natal family, everyone involved got beatings, and the second husband lost his entire investment. All right, so there's a risk involved. There is an element of risk, especially if someone beats another person up or violence gets involved. That increases the risk. Also the desperation of the seller. The price is rock bottom. Okay, Much cheaper than a bride price, and he can't wait for multiple offers or he wouldn't be selling in the first place. He needs money now. And when you need money now and you can't wait out the market, you're going to get bottom basement prices for the commodity you're selling. And there's also another form of risk of the living first husband. There's always the chance he'll have a change of heart or feel enduring resentment. This was the biggest investment in my life. I've lost my chance for sons, for domestic harmony, and you took advantage of me. All right. Oftentimes, actually, this very... Problem, the tension with the first husband who feels totally screwed over. You've taken advantage of my sorry ass situation. He'll end up actually demanding supplementary payments. About half the time in Ching Court cases, the seller later demanded a supplementary uh, payment. Why? Because he has lingering resentment at feeling taken advantage of due to his desperate circumstances. You should have pity on me, damn it. I lost the biggest investment of my life, my one and only shot to have a family. You owe me more money than you actually paid me in the contract. And because this is illegal, and I have nothing else to lose, I just might walk over to the magistrate's office and tell him what happened. And yeah, I'll get beaten. But maybe, more likely, you'll be willing to keep yourself out of the gaze of the law and pay me a little bit more money. And pay me a little bit more money. So we don't have to bring this to the attention of the authorities. So, you know, most people would be willing, most people who bought someone else's wife would be willing to make two or three supplementary payments over the ensuing years. Then, of course, after that, you would naturally assume that they would start to feel resentment themselves and would say, enough, this guy is going to be extorting me for money for the rest of my life. And the single most common reason why wife sales ended up in court is because the buyer of the wife got tired of this extortion for supplementary payments and he attacked or killed the seller. And then the authorities are absolutely going to get involved. All right. Last thing to talk about. Once again, female agency, just like we talked about it with polyandry. Most wife sales resulted from the wife's initiative, not the husband's. Usually the only form of selling a a woman's body or bodily services that she is very resistant to is often prostitution for understandable reasons. Polyandry, wife sales, she's often a full, a full participant in it. She has to be, she has to be. Because she could just go to the authorities, and it's one of the few times that the authorities are going to listen to a woman. She says, this is what my husband's doing to me, it's illegal, Uh, and they would get involved. Okay. The husband had everything to lose in a wife sale. Well, she gets a new start. Poverty is also so crushing that marital life is already quite miserable. Here's a court case excerpt in which a husband describes how his wife tried to force him to sell her. He didn't want to sell her. And she forced him. Quote, Because we were really poor, my wife would never get along with me and she wasn't willing to sleep with me. She often quarreled with me and pressured me to sell her in marriage to some other man. One night, I finished work and came home and saw that my wife had already gone to bed. I lit the lamp and told her to mend my shirt, but she ignored me. Now, I'm nearly 40 years old and I still have no son, so I spoke to her nicely and tried to persuade her to have sex with me. And I moved my pillow over next to her, thinking that we would sleep together but my wife threw my pillow on the floor and pulled the blanket over her head to sleep. I thought to myself, every day she complains and quarrels and rejects me, and she's not willing to make a family with me. I could see that there was no hope she would ever change. The more I thought about it, the more anger and hatred I felt. Now, this case ended, ended in homicide. Uh, but again, you have to assume for each case that ends in homicide, the same tensions that led to homicide were present in other cases, but they didn't result in such drastic measures. Okay. Um, Regardless, just like with polyandry, wife sales could not take place if the wife was not a willing participant. Okay. If the wife has to be a willing participant, she can go to her natal family, she can proclaim over the rooftops of the village, this is what my husband is trying to do. And the authorities would get involved. Okay. All right. Now, now, the reality is, the takeaway point I want you to have from today's episode, okay, is that this is a, this is a brutal, cold world. It really is. Most of us can't even begin to imagine what this, these sort of circumstances are, are like. All right, My stomach's already grumbling because it's been a couple hours since I had breakfast and I'm looking forward to having lunch. I can't imagine serious starvation. I've read descriptions of it. I've heard what it's like. It sounds awfully bad. But I've never experienced it, and neither have you, let's be honest. All right. In such horrible circumstances, where most people are living just barely at at or below the subsistence level, men and women had to make rational and pragmatic decisions to develop new streams of income from an unsentimental manipulation of the woman's sexual, reproductive, and domestic labor. Okay? Okay. It was a brutal, cold world. It was defined by an exploitative patriarchy, no doubt about it. But as historians, we also want to point out that women have agency. They can make rational decisions to influence their fate. And this was also a world in which everyone, including women, did everything they could to survive. And in order to survive, they often made decisions that surprise us today. And we have a very difficult time comprehending because it's so alien to us. Uh, Incidentally, if you find this topic to be of particular interest, there are two wonderful books that you should read. My, my, the this, this entire topic, this entire lecture is based on my, my reading and notes from these books, in fact. Um, they're written by uh, a scholar, a wonderful scholar uh, named Matthew Summer. He's a professor of Chinese history at Stanford University, and he has two books. I believe the first one was Sex, Law, and Society in Late Imperial China. Um, and the other one is uh, uh, Polyandry and Wife Sales. Um, Anyways, there's two books. Look up Matthew Summer on Amazon or in a library catalog. Uh, You should definitely look at his books. Gripping reading, wonderful scholarship. All right, enough of all this. In our next episode, we're going to delve into the life and the career of officials, magistrates. I keep on talking about them, right? You know, they they look down upon the peasants. uh, They make a a shitload of money. Um, Now we're actually going to go into the government yamen. The yamen, the name of the government office where Chinese officials work and we're going to see what the view is from the magistrate's desk in episode 26 of Beyond Hua Xia. Thank you, and I'll look forward to seeing you then.